0: Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 112,
1: Mother Lupino.
0: Yes, which is about the one and only Ida Lupino, a famous actress um, and starlet of Hollywood turned uh, director and one of the first uh, members on the scene for independent productions in the 50s and early 60s.
1: And that successor kind of to, that. yeah, and successor to our last, uh, our last topic, which was, um, Dorothy Arzner as uh, the second woman inducted into the Directors Guild of America and yeah. uh, Directors Guild Association. No, Directors Guild of America. Yeah, um, and yeah, that's uh, it, right? Gosh, yeah, well, I've so, never been so <laughs> uncertain
0: what DGA stands for.
1: So she kind of takes up the mantle, and we're going to talk about her career, both her uh, acting career and her directing career. Um, so, before that, let's get into just a little bit of the background. She was born in 1918 in London, England, uh, and her whole family actually came from a very long line of performers, like going back hundreds of years, uh, you know, through various stage uh, performances, and um, I think like they kind of started off almost as like clowns. And then they actually became Shakespearean actress actors and actresses. Uh, I saw one, one tidbit that Ida Lupino had memorized, uh, every female character from every female leading character from the Shakespeare plays, uh, by the time she was like 15 or something ridiculous. Um, so, you know, very classically trained performer. Um, and her dad and her parents were very, uh, encouraging of that because it was kind of the family business. That's what everyone did. That's what all the Lupinos did. Um, so she originally started working as uh, kind of background extras in various uh, British uh, movies uh, from the British international studios. Uh, she studied her dramatic acting at the Royal Academy um, and she didn't really want to be an actor. Uh, she wanted to do more writing and more um of the creation of the uh, of the stories and stuff like that, which kind of becomes the whole arc of her career is trying to move away from acting and into uh, the the more, um, you know, directing and writing types of roles. Uh, so she started, uh, again, she started starring in British films like the love race, her first affair, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she was usually kind of a seductress character, um, which would kind of transition her into being the femme fatale, one of the most famous femme fatales from, uh, the classic Hollywood noir, uh, uh, genre, which we're going to see two instances of today. So after she ended up playing a, uh, a sweeter
0: than typical role. In uh, Money for Speed in 1933, another British International Studios picture, Paramount Scouts officially quote. Wow. I don't know what this movie is about, but it her. sounds
1: like it's about drugs.
0: Um, I don't think Speed was <laughs> linked for drugs in 1933, 1933 but uh, but I, d- Money I don't, for I, don't speed. I don't I don't I mean it could be. It's probably about racing or something like that. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, essentially, she was discovered by Paramount. Quote discovered. Um, and she began starring in a series of noir and crime films and various B-movies for different studios around Los Angeles, now in America. Uh, Eventually, she would go on suspension after refusing to star in a film with Ronald Reagan uh, back when he was an actor, during which time she spent observing uh, filming and editing of other productions and getting an interest in uh, directing her own films. She eventually starred in On Dangerous Ground from 1951, Uh, where she took over some of the directing responsibilities from director Nicholas Ray, um, probably most famous for rebel without a cause after he took ill. Uh, She and her husband at the time then formed an independent production company called the filmmakers. Uh, One of their, yeah, I mean, we're called the Filmlings. It's very, (laughs) it's very close. Uh, One of the films for that company uh, is called Not Wanted and gave her her first full directing job after the original hire had a heart attack. Um, I don't believe he died at the time, but he, he did die. Um, but do note that she's really only getting these opportunities not because, because she's qualified, which she is at this point. I mean, we well, talked about yeah. how much studying in her background, but because male directors are falling ill around her. Um, but because she is of fuck, but she in the perfect position to take advantage. She can do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she's now able to jump in. Also, she controlled the production company on it, which so she had the final say in the matter as well. Uh, she received her first director's credit, a uh, full director's credit on the semi autobiographical work. Uh, Never fear from 1949.
1: Yeah, that's actually kind of about her experience with polio when when she was younger. Um, actually, when she had when she had just started um, in uh, the in Hollywood, apparently polio started going around from the swimming pools, uh, which, first of all, for some reason, I didn't realize that polio was a virus. Um, but yeah, that's why anyway. you can have a vaccine for it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. For some, I don't know why I always thought it was genetic or something like that. Yeah, um, polio, polio, and smallpox are the only two uh, diseases we've ever completely wiped out. Yeah. So she uh, she had polio and. Uh, It it actually kind of changed her mindset because she was very um, like we said, she used to she played a lot of kind of uh, seductress roles and stuff like that because she was very beautiful as an actress. And she put a lot of stock in that in her physical appearance and her uh, physical abilities. And so when she had polio and, um, you know, it it made her stop thinking about uh, herself as much and, and focus more on. Uh, Her mental capacities and her writing and her ability to direct and that kind of a thing. So that's kind of one of those things in in that movie, Never Fear, kind of goes into the just the mental struggle of what it means. It's about a a dancer, a professional dancer who gets polio and she has to kind of, you know, remove her identity from those physical abilities and kind of change to just seeing herself having a better self image. Um, So I think that's kind of just interesting. in her personal uh, emotional journey.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a good, it's a good, it's another very poignant and personal entry into her over. Um, And during that period, she would spend uh, most of her time working on films, uh, specializing in social issues, including outrage from 1953, which as much as she could at the time detailed the fallout from a uh, rape case.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, which I had to look up uh, is not the outrage, which we actually covered on the no, podcast, I had, I and, was, which is also I, I about had to rape. Check, I had to check the same thing.
0: It, it was essentially code at the time because yeah. uh, you couldn't say rape because right. of the Hayes Code. Um, and, and that was uh, kind of the tendency of her production company and the work she was working on up until The Hitchhiker from 1953, which is one of the films we're going to cover today. Uh, which was the first noir film made by a woman. Uh, She liked to be called Mother on set, and the back of her director's chair read Mother of Us All on it. Uh, So that was one of her um, strategies for getting crews full of uh, men to listen to her instructions. Uh, And she would often leverage that non-threatening domestic feminist persona uh, to survive in a otherwise male-dominated industry. Again, it also helped that she owned her own production company, which gave her lots of leverage. Um, And even though she preferred directing over acting, she had to keep performing to secure funds and uh, eventually became known as a wily, low-budget filmmaker, utilizing a lot of techniques that are part of the indie filmmaker bag uh, through the 60s, 70s, and even up to today, uh, reusing sets in actual locations, uh, using amateur actors, uh, product placement to get money and uh, sponsorship for the movies. And she eventually became known as the poor man's Don Siegel. Don Siegel is kind of like, he did a lot of noir films, a lot of action films. I believe he did a lot of work with Clint Eastwood in his early career uh, in Mm. America after he returned from the, his Italian exile. But which is also saying something because Don Siegel is often referred to as like the poor man's action director. (laughs) Um, So she's the poor man's poor man's action director. Uh, and eventually she transitioned uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, I think a little bit in the 80s, into a successful TV directing and acting career, uh, including work on The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Bewitched, Gilligan's Island, and many more. Uh,
1: but I think to- she's actually the only, or the first female director to do um, consistent episodic work. So there had been like Almost uh, certainly female film directors to some extent, but like in TV was just starting at this point. Uh, it's a little bit past like Dorothy Arzner's careers when TV was starting to really take off. And so Ida Lupino was in a perfect position as far as, uh, You know, being able to step in and being so versatile, which I think is one of the things we got to talk about. I mean, you know, going between The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock presents, which are usually, you know, really dramatic and sinister uh, and then Bewitched and Gilligan's Island. Like she's all over the place in terms of what kinds of uh, films she can make. And we're even going to see that in uh, our episode today.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an important point. She was really the again for a long portion of her career. She was the like the only female director Mm -hmm. working. Uh, and so when TV popped up, she kind of, you know, pioneered that as well for, uh, female directors of which there are now quite a few. Uh, yeah. I would, I'm willing to bet, although I don't have the numbers right in front of me, uh, just based on my experience with looking at movie credits versus TV credits and working on TV shows that there's more, the per- percentage of female
1: directors is probably higher in the TV world than it is in the film world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of that is probably because, you know, there's a lot of directing opportunities in the TV world because you can come yeah, in for an it's, episode it's and out for an episode just, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's just and there's so in much the past TV several years. right now.
0: I mean, well, <laughs> that would be correct to say five months ago, Jonathan.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no longer. <laughs> it boomed between a couple years ago and a couple months ago.
0: I think, I think the, I think the, on, on totally different tangent, I think this, uh, pandemic will mark the end of the TV's golden era. I think the golden era was already over, but I think this kind of knocked it down. Not to say that TV's trash now, just that the expectation that that news mm-hmm. show your friends are talking about is going to be the best thing you've ever seen. It's probably not nearly as reliable as it used to be. Yeah. We've entered a silver age of sorts, um, there's just an inundation of it too. Like it's yeah. hard for everything to be oh, gosh. great. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, how can, how can you dominate the TV scene anymore? Like Breaking yeah. Bad or Game of Thrones did like Even a platform, you know? Yeah. It's, ridiculous. it's impossible. There's too much coming out, but that is besides the point. I think we've talked about that on a bonus podcast before, but that's besides the point. Uh, we are talking about three specific films, trying to use them as lenses to look out that wide, expansive career. Of Ida Lupino today, the first of which is High Sierra from 1941, which is directed by Raul Walsh, um, who, who can deserve is, his own episode at some point. <laughs> he's he's a crazy dude. I I love him, but he's nuts. And he also like <laughs> at, like early on in his career, he was like driving through the desert to like make a movie with um, uh, Douglas Fairbanks and a jackrabbit hopped uh, through the windshield of his car and took out his eye. So he had oh a hatch hatch for like his entire he sounds
1: like a movie character.
0: Yes, no, I mean that's like the entirety of early Hollywood. They're all just <laughs> they're all crazy like cowboys essentially of the film world. That's what early like teens and 20s Hollywood is. Um and that's that crazy. movie stars Ida Lupino and our old favorite Humphrey Bogart. Uh then we're going to watch uh and discuss The Hitchhiker from 1953 directed by Ida Lupino. Again, that's that first a uh, female directed noir film that we were talking about um, also i think probably a very good ex- the best example i've seen so far of her as an independent filmmaker oh um, it's so
1: indie it's so stripped it's so down. indie
0: yeah it's like indie before french new wave was indie which is yeah. like,
1: like impressive we could go out and and you know, shoot that kind of thing. You really just need actors in a car and some prop guns. Uh,
0: finally, we're going to talk about the trouble with angels from 1966, which is her only color film. We're going to be talking about today. Also the final full film she directed of her career, uh, obviously directed by Ida
1: Lupino and starring Rosalind Russell um, and Haley Mills, uh, Haley Mills, most famous probably for the parent trap. Uh, and the film actually has a lot of parallels with the parent trap. It really does. Um, We'll get into that. There's a lot of angst in
0: there. It's a very, very 60s movie. Yeah. Lots of Technicolor. um, But also very female oriented in a time period or a decade where a lot of those films didn't exist. Uh, Yeah. So it's kind of important in that regard. Uh, Got a weird reception when it came out. Anyway, there's a story to all these films. But (laughs) without further ado, let's jump into High Sierra from 1941. Jason, take it away.
2: High Sierra from 1941. Roy Earle, a gangster heistman, has spent many long years in jail. That is, until the gangster boss Big Mac has him released from prison to lead a job on a resort in the town of Tropico Springs, California. He makes his way up into the Sierras and meets with his crew for the job, a group of inexperienced and scared young men. In addition, he finds himself caught between two young women, one an innocent girl with a limp Roy pays to heal, the other a dance hall girl caught in an abusive relationship with one of Roy's crew, a relationship that Roy puts it into. Back in the real world for the first time in years, Roy is torn between two roads, one leading to redemption and the other to a spiral of self-destruction that is, if forgetting his past, is even an option. So, High Sierra
0: is kind of a movie, in a lot of ways, that's kind of about fate, and like your struggle against yeah. fate. Um, so our main character, played by Humphrey Bogart, starts off the movie getting out of jail, which he thought he was going to spend his entire life in. Um, but his old crime buddy got him out uh, because of corruption uh, and is mm-hmm. having him do one last job. And essentially One last the, job. There's a, That's a whole genre in itself. <laughs> one last job is like signing your own death warrant. Why would yeah. anyone
1: do? <laughs> that's like an epitaph. Yeah, he just wanted one
0: last job. He just wanted one last Dorito. That was the last <laughs> we saw of him. Um, but I like to look at this movie, and I got this uh, this feeling when I was watching this movie uh, that it was very much kind of him being torn between two paths going forward. Yeah, and he's trying so hard to go towards his future, towards a future of innocence and redemption, but the entire way he's being dragged down back towards his past, back towards crime, back towards this fate that is awaiting him at the end.
2: And, and he actually in gets a way
0: rejected that, by the innocent path too, he does, which is He does, really which is important because yeah. when I looked at the promotional picture, the promotional poster for this uh, movie, uh, it says something on it along the lines of, he killed so he must die um, literally on the poster, which is like Hays Code 101. If somebody yeah. if somebody does something wrong in a movie, especially if they're a criminal or a gangster uh, or a drug dealer or a pimp or something like that, they have to be punished by the end of the movie and normally by death. Um, it has to happen. Like, it's almost a rule. So in that sense, it's almost kind of like a meta movie, slightly. Like, we're playing with the idea that as an audience... And as filmmakers, we've all been trained to expect that he does something wrong. He's he's a criminal. Uh, We Mm -hmm. expect him to have to be killed by the end of the movie. But also we spend the entire movie hoping he won't be because we see how human he is and how he doesn't really want to be a criminal anymore. But he's doing it because that's the only thing he knows how to do. That's what he's drawn towards. Uh, And he and Ida Lupino's character try really hard (laughs) to get away from it and to live a life of freedom, but they just can't, they just can't escape it.
1: There was like a combination of two other noirs that we've talked about that, uh, I kept coming back to when we were watching, when I was watching this movie. Um, and that's obviously mostly just for, uh, aesthetic reasons. Um, treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, because it's literally set in the Sierra and, you know, Humphrey Bogart and all that. Uh, but also, um, Asphalt Jungle, because this is basically a heist film before heist films, because we talked about how the Asphalt Jungle was basically the movie that popularized the heist film genre. And yet this movie hits a lot of those same beats, uh, even down to uh, like the the femme fatale in um, I guess she wasn't really a femme fatale in uh, Asphalt Jungle, but. The, the girlfriend character who's like she's clinging on to him and she wants him to redeem his life, but he's so set on his one goal and uh, actually specifically getting back to like a home and to like a, almost like a farm life. Um, and that's kind of what Ida Lupino's character is here. Uh, she's the one that's clinging on to him. She sees uh, the goodness in him, but she's kind of, uh, in this film, she's kind of the... She's also corrupted and she's trying to, uh, you know, balance that and get away from it, but she's kind of too, too deep into it. And he's not really interested in her until he gets completely rejected by uh, this goal that he's striving towards, uh, which is, is really interesting. The, the comparison between, uh, you know, the innocent farm girl and the, uh, the kind of corrupt femme fatale and how those two, are pulling at him in different ways. Like he's striving towards the one and the other is, is striving for him and they're kind of, you know, tugging him in two different directions.
0: Yeah. Uh, there is, um, it definitely feels like the second he learns, he's not going to be allowed into the world of peaceful farm owners. Uh, he accepts his lot in life, uh, and almost kind of just like settles for Ida Lupino's character, um, yeah. you never get the shame. sense
1: that he actually cares that much. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, they—I honestly think they kind of make a pretty good match. Um, yeah, I mean, she has good intentions. It's not like she wants to be a hardened criminal. She's just kind of been hardened by circumstances. Yeah, and same with him. Yeah, neither of them want the situation they're in, but they find themselves stuck in it,
0: which yeah. is what makes it kind of the, the you know it's a fateful tragedy we all know how it's going to end and just based on the promotion of the of the uh of the movie from the uh, the time it came out the original posters they all knew how it was going to end too uh,
1: yeah, i didn't actually notice the poster but that's interesting it's interesting too because he doesn't actually uh kill anybody until pretty late in the movie like that's i'm assuming that refers to the uh the security guard in the heist which yeah, I is think so. Well past the midpoint. Um, I mean, up to that, we know that he did something wrong beforehand, but we don't see that, so it, it's yeah. I, I don't, don't think, think we that really counts learn. on at his record. Uh, on his record, I think
0: it's just the idea that he is a criminal. Yeah, that kind of lines him up for that death sentence in a Hayes Code movie. That makes him stuck for it. But again, like I, there there are a lot of plot beats in this movie. Uh, but I don't feel like the plot is necessarily super complicated. We see people do a lot of things, but the 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 emotions and the motivations remain relatively straightforward um, mm-hmm. in an understandable way. That kind of makes them uh, super poetic, in a sense. That we're seeing this yeah. man struggle against his own
1: fate. It builds this this really uh, poetic tableau that. We talk about a lot with uh, um, this this thematic tableau that we talk about with noir films, where you have, uh, you know, the good girl and the bad girl, and the the life of crime versus you know this this desire for innocence, and all of these things that kind of build up to, you know, one climax that is basically just uh, uh, justice being meted out, um, in, you know, usually in tragedy. Uh, But it is interesting that, you know, this isn't one where, uh, you know, he was necessarily like being betrayed. It was almost like he was just on a treadmill and he could never kind of catch up with with where he was trying to get to. He's trying to he's trying to turn
0: the speed down, but it just wouldn't go down. Yeah. All right. So what do you think of Ida Lupino as a femme fatale? What do you think it is about her that s- makes her suit the role so well, Jonathan?
1: She has a, a very. Uh, she's really good at doing this sternness, um, this like, you know, like she's not gonna get pushed around if she doesn't want to be. She does a lot of um, kind of pining for hum- Humphrey Bogart, but that's kind of of her own volition. You know, it's not like if if she's being uh, pushed around she can stand up to it or like she can take it. Um, and there's, there's the bit where Humphrey Bogart has to, he, you know, basically starts a fight for her. Uh, but she always feels like, you know, if she's got a problem, she's going to come up and, and take care of it herself. Uh, and I think that that really helps because, you know, you've got a bunch of these really tough and hardened and especially in contrast with the farm girl who, uh, you know, never really has anything. She, she, Ends up having to stand up for herself, and it feels like it, it. takes something out of her. Like she breaks down after she has to re- reject Humphrey Bogart. Um, and she kind of going through that,
0: going through that. I think that first step on the path. That I don't think, and I don't think she'll take any more steps on the path either. But it's something that probably happened to Ida Lupino's character a long, long time ago. Um, that
1: first breaking of the self to do something hard. Um, yeah, and it's not to say that that's. That that's wrong. I mean, like, you no. know, she was just she was oh, expressing she was her totally. own feelings, and he got the wrong idea just based on all the other things that that you know their connection had kind of formed. Um, but you know, she wasn't interested in taking that relationship further, and it's the only thing that he was holding on to. So yeah, you know, she wasn't you know persuaded into something that she didn't believe in. And yet, that's kind of this—the thing that that broke him. There's there's so many like layers to that that bit.
0: Yeah, and and you know what? I don't even think he. I don't even think he was that in love with her. I think he was in love with the idea of the escape that being in love with her represented. Like mm-hmm. the idea that of getting life. away to a safer life, to a life without crime, with to a life without being in jail and pulled out of jail by old criminals who want a favor.
1: Yeah which you know he he kind of saw her as that escape but was un, once he saw that he was unwilling to consider any other options and so when he couldn't reach this one specific way out he just kind of uh, gave up um, yeah he
0: is as a character very good at trapping himself yeah
1: like and that's then there's that's, the time.
0: <laughs> that's how the movie ends is yeah,
1: trapping himself yeah and then himself. there's the confrontation scene um where Ida Lupino goes in after he goes back to to see her, uh, and you know they have this kind of face off, mostly just for Ida Lupino's character to get you know peace of mind that the other girl doesn't actually love him, um, and all that. So there's there's so many like layers, and and everyone is representing something different.
0: Yeah, no, I also appreciate how much agency uh, Ida Lupino's character has. Because she mm-hmm. does
1: act independently quite a bit. Um, yeah, her and the farm girl, because the farm girl never feels like, uh, you know, like she's being pressured into anything either. Yeah, or when she, she is, she, she, she stands up to it. Yeah. Yeah. So none, yeah. none of them are, are kind of the the damsel in distress type of character. No. And I think that's actually
0: something that I've seen quite a bit uh, from Raul Walsh specifically. Yeah. Um, he was one of those uh, early directors who learned how to direct based off of like life experience. Um, and he's got one of those crazy stories like his. He's in the Bogdanovich book. Um, who the hell made it? Um, where he talks about his early life of like, I was bored. So I went out west to become a rancher and then I was a cowboy <laughs> and then I was a sailor and then I was like a bullfighter and like all this like just crazy crazy stuff. And just based off of that life experience is how he learned how to direct, how people kind of actually act. Um, And I I think it's hard to say for anybody who actually observes how people actually actually act to not give female characters that much agency. Like they're people, they, they, they have agency, they have their own wishes and desires and they act on it. Um, But it is a nice role to see Ida Lupino in. Uh, and I think it might be one of the things that helped influence her other her desire to make noir in the future.
1: Yeah. And this is not the only noir that she was in. She became famous for being oh gosh, no. uh that really stern, really uh hardened type of character in these movies. I mean, this that's kind of what most of these movies are about is, you know, these really strong characters and they often have female characters that Uh, are either criminals themselves or they uh, are drawn to criminals and that kind of thing. And she had that uh, that presence and that that command that made her fit into those roles a lot. It's not what she wanted to do all the time, but it's what she got uh, pretty famous for. So she did a lot of them. Um, And then eventually she went on to make her own noir film, uh, which actually has zero female characters in it.
0: Yeah, that's a hard bottle film. It's it's a hard bottle film, which is one of its strengths, Um, and it's particularly violent. So I don't know if I entirely, I I I kind of understand her decision there. Yeah, but we're also going to talk about the trouble with angels, which is all like all female characters. Yeah, completely. Kind of ends up uh, ends up balancing itself out, and also that's kind of her putting the story ahead of um, ahead of other things which is important yeah
1: so uh, shall we move on to the hitchhiker from 1953? yes we shall Jason right. take it
2: away the hitchhiker from 1953 two men Edmund and Frank are driving from their home in El Centro California to a fishing trip in the south when they make a last minute decision to turn towards San Felipe on the Gulf of California Along this route, they pick up a hitchhiker named Emmett Myers. Emmett Myers turns out to be a psychopathic serial killer who's been hitchhiking rides across the country as he kills the drivers. Myers pulls a gun on Edmund and Frank, compelling them into a road trip crime spree that quickly goes sideways. It's up to Edmund and Frank to get a step ahead of Myers or pay with their lives. All right.
1: Jonathan. You had seen The Hitchhiker before, hadn't you? Okay, so I had found out about this movie. It's like public domain, or you can find copies of it everywhere online. So I have, I've had it like downloaded, and I've wanted to watch it, but I hadn't actually got around to watching it until this episode.
0: Understood. Um, well, I think it's it's an interesting story, um, but I think the funnest way to take a look at this movie is in how well-made of an indie movie it is uh, Mm -hmm. and how early of an indie movie it is. So let's go ahead and define indie real quick because it's not, it's maybe not what you think it is. Uh, Most people know indie stands for independent. Hopefully you do. Uh, But it really just means something that's made away from the official or unofficial influence of the, of a major studio. Um, something that's which made on your own resources, side. which means resources, which are hard to match in a uh, market that's dominated by large, um, you know, flashy Hollywood movies, and especially yeah. in an era where, say, for a few exceptions, there wasn't a lot of movies that were so like narratively or stylistically um, unique, or dramatic, or different. That you had to go see it, regardless of like the budget that was put behind it. Yeah. You went to your local Paramount movie theater, and you saw whatever Paramount was putting out that week. If you liked movies, that's pretty much what happened. Um, so it was very hard for an independent filmmaker to to get something out there in front of eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, over and the this years, is also the change. age
1: of the epic. Like between yes. the late fifties <laughs> and early sixties, like epics were the thing like from Yeah, these are big Player historical elements. of Arabia and her, you know, you've got all of these huge like really really flashy movies coming yeah, kind of out just of the How noir, much money can we put films, into it? Yeah, noir films are not huge uh big budget type productions like they had a lot that goes into them, but you know, when you you're moving out of the late 40s into the 50s and 60s, like the the budgets are getting bigger. These are the things that are in vogue are huge Really big, flashy, uh, colorful movies, and uh, here comes Ida Lupino, who you know doesn't want to play by all the rules that the studio uh, wants her to. She's tired of playing uh, the bit roles and the femme fatales, which she was very good at, but she wants more control. And so she's like, "Well, screw it! I'm going to start my own studio, and uh, I'll." She she wrote and uh, directed this. So she wrote it with um, her then husband. And uh, so she's like, she's got all the control over this production and she's got, I mean, and decades of experience making noir films as yeah, an right. and just watching them being made, whether she was in them or not uh, just kind of hanging out around the studios. Uh, and so she gets, you know, enough of a budget for uh, three guys in a car. And literally the opening title card is, this is a movie about a man, a car and a gun. Uh, and that's really what the movie is about. Yeah,
0: no, it's really simple. There's like three main characters. Occasionally you see a few mm-hmm. more, but they're pulled in for like extras. a hot second. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're pulled in for like a scene and that's it. Um, you know, very few. I mean, locations that are all just driven to in a car and probably all shot in the uh, desert outside of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, right. You know, there's a few small towns, but those are easy to shoot. Um, and a really, really simple plot. Two guys have essentially been kidnapped by a psychopath, serial killer, hitchhike driver, um, hitchhiker, uh, hitchhiker. who is going to use them Uber on passenger. a crime. Essentially, who's <laughs> going to use them on a crime spree and kill them at the end
1: of it if they can't figure a way out. And now, that's Or any time during it, because yeah. we've seen with, at the very beginning, there's like a montage of him just like randomly killing this couple and this old guy. We don't know why he killed them. We don't know how long he was in the car with them. Uh, but, yeah, we know that the danger is real. And actually, by the end of the movie, I was like, how are they still alive? <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's crazy. He, I mean, he's, he, he he's shows a himself total, to be a psychopath.
0: He's a total psychopath. It's crazy. But, yeah, it's it's such a simple plot setup that, one, and these are super important Explanations of why a lot of indie movies do this one is dramatic and intention grabbing. Um, two, it doesn't require a lot of explanation. There's no deep, complicated backstory as to why this guy is a psychopathic serial killer. He just is. And we accept yeah. it and we move on and we don't spend the time or the very valuable film resources, making scenes or plot line about that or hiring the extra actors or all that stuff. We keep it simple. We keep it tense. Um, it's a struggle for survival. Uh, it's really a, the it's only just problem. a power thing the whole yeah. time. Yeah, it's all it's all very. And this is where her being an actor comes in handy. The The thing that makes each scene good is that there's the threat of death and then it's power plays between the three characters, yeah. um, which makes it really interesting. Um, it's hard not when people are uh those power shifts and scenes are one of the key beats uh, that can make a scene interesting and grip and make it significant in the overall pop plot of the play. Even when there isn't a lot of action necessarily going on. Um, and there's a lot of, I also want to point this one out really too, because this is important, especially for anyone who's doing indie stuff. They shoot a lot of it at night, <laughs>
1: um, which makes which it is... way easier to shoot. Actually, that's, that's not necessarily true. So it first can of all, it, it can be, but it also means, uh, you need a lot more resources in terms of, uh, lighting and, um, you know, cameras that can handle it and that kind of thing, especially, uh, these days. But I think one of the things with the hitchhiker is that, um, they do day for night, which is way easier to do on black and white. Um, sure. but a lot of times, especially with like modern digital cameras that just look like garbage in, uh, in low light, like if if you're going out with kind of a cheap DSLR or something and trying to make a film these days without a a, a lot of good lighting, then the nighttime is usually not the time that you want to do it. But it's is a little bit different in the setting that she was making this. It's not like the the uh, the cinematography
0: is not inspired. It's more like it's just solid utilitarian. Super, yeah, it's very utilitarian. There you go. Um, it doesn't. She doesn't overreach in areas mm. of the film where she knows she doesn't have the resources to back it yeah. up. Which is still But it so still important. looks
1: very good for for what it needs yeah. to do. No, it looks great. And I love. Uh, I mean, I just love black and white in general. So the the really contrasty kind of uh, deal, especially you know, uh, noirs and black and white go so well together. And this is you know not quite into the realm where we're turning noirs into neo noirs. Uh, this is so like borderline neo noir. Yeah, it it might be like the very beginning of that, just because the classic noir is kind of at its at its tail end, um, but you know it still has all of those classic elements. But actually, Alex, I I almost want to to challenge this because uh, at some point in the film, I started to feel that it was almost more of a western than it was actually a noir. Did you get that oh. sense? It just just because of the sheer amount of road travel, yes, yeah, the travel. I mean, it literally takes place in Mexico for most of it, um, and uh, there's. I think the the moment when I started to think about that, and I was like, actually, a lot of this kind of feels that way. I mean, you've got the bandit um, and the the innocence and that kind of thing, but when the when they uh, they sabotage the car and they have to walk across the desert. And I started thinking about in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly when uh, Ugly makes um, uh, Clint Eastwood march across the desert uh, for a really long time. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) This is actually hitting a lot of those beats with the, uh, you know, a lot of the, so it's kind of on the border between a noir and a Western uh, in a a pretty interesting way. Because it's not like a classic Western, but it's also not really a classic noir because we're missing a lot of the things that go into a noir, noir as well, like a femme fatale. Uh, like an element of the law and that kind of thing. And I think, I feel like that's actually one of the
0: things, I can't remember if we specifically talked about it, but I feel like it's almost a signifier of neo-noir when noir starts to be mixed slightly with other genres. Um, Yeah, I can see that. And and I feel like this is, again, on that line. I I don't know if i go so far as to say it is neo-noir, but it's like a precursor to it mm-hmm. more so than a traditional Hollywood made uh, Hollywood B picture neo-noirs are because this isn't even a Hollywood B picture.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like its own thing. And at this point, like indie film is just its own thing because it wasn't anything else <laughs> at this point. OK, so one of the other things that I want to get into that I think also distinguishes it from. Uh, classic noirs in a lot of ways is the ending. So I'm going to put down the spoiler warning here. This is available everywhere. You can watch it on Tubi or you can find a copy on uh, Internet Archive. There's actually a good HD quality on Internet Archive somewhere. Um, So I'll put a link to that in the blog post. Uh, But Alex, what did you think about the ending? Because in some ways it reminded me of like in its setting and uh, tension, it reminded me of like touch of evil, but the actual conclusion of the film is very different.
0: Yeah, no, it ends well, which I'm, I'm surprised by. Um, yeah, it's kind of very much. It kind of feels like the the Hayes Code coming back in again in a way, or at least the the sheer convention of uh, Hollywood during uh during this era of always having happy endings um it feels like that's coming back into play here
1: which yeah makes sense and and yet it it feels like there's um so by the time i got to the end it made me kind of rethink the whole point of the movie because uh it, it is very optimistic like it is kind of a a, a rose-colored ending where uh, the bad guy gets caught by the police and uh, gets taken away. And the two guys kind of like, you know, put their arm around each other's shoulders and limp off into the distance. Uh, but I don't, I think at that point, I realized that the whole movie was about their friendship. And I hadn't really been watching it for that. And, uh, but it, it just made me like rethink the whole thing. It's, it's about how these two guys interact with this criminal who's holding them at gunpoint and the opportunities in which they have to uh, betray each other and uh, or ditch each other and and they don't and contrasting that with the hitchhiker who is you know lone wolf very proud of the fact that you know he can take care of himself Uh, his gun is his only friend Um, and then the 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 real life friendship of these two guys overcomes the, uh, the dependence that the hitchhiker has on the gun, which is a symbol of his, uh, his perceived power. Uh, so I did not go nearly that deep on this movie. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't pick I up on any there. of that. <laughs> I think it's in there and I didn't think about it until again, like, uh, at the very end, I was like, wait a second. I think there's another level. Cause they do have those conversations about how, uh, how much he trusts in his gun and, you know, without the gun, you're nothing. And and it's also about – because there were a couple instances where the the two guys were like, hey, just leave, just go take care of yourself, and and yet they stick to each other even when it proves more dangerous for one of them. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. That's totally uh, – I, I mean, it's there. It's not yeah, out I there think, for sure. Yeah, I know. I think it looks really simple on its face, but I think that, you know – if you look into it there there actually is some some levels of of complexity in the the story even though the the setup and the presentation is really you know stripped bare
0: I feel like that might be one of those things where art exists beyond its creator's intentions um, kind of uh, I mean I just I kind of just don't I didn't pick up on any of that, but maybe, maybe, maybe it was there intended, but there's also this strength to films and other art forms like this, where upon multiple viewings and different people with different viewpoints viewing it, you can extract different meanings from it. Um, So maybe it was there, maybe it was intended. but whether, regardless of whether or not it was intended, it can be inferred, which is
1: the strength Mm of it. Mm -hmm. And there, there are enough hints that, Uh, you know, at least give me the idea that it probably was extent it intended to some extent, and whether or not the audiences really like resonated with it is kind of up for debate. And I mean, that kind of uh, a lot of people do consider this her best film. Uh, and so I think some of that may may go into that. Um, and she does have kind of reputation for making films that that have very kind of uh, sympathetic and empathetic portrayals of characters. And I think that, that that friendship element kind of goes into into this. Although there was one thing that I was really confused about, which was this um, implication that the two guys were lying to their wives about something. Like they said that they were going to go to this one uh, spot and go fishing, but they were actually going in like an opposite direction uh, so which, they they changed their um
0: they changed their their uh their destination last minute um, which I didn't think it was like them lying to their wives I thought it was just like eh, the hitchhiker gonna... kind of implies that they lied to their wives about something so I think I mean... that just might be the hitchhiker messing with their heads yeah, I think that's true. I the what what I read into that moment was uh the 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 that this was just a poor twist of fate in a way like yeah. how you're a few steps away from destiny and then you get hit by a bus. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, not that we've ever seen that in a movie, um, but you know, you might be like, ah, we'll make a decision to go to San Felipe instead. And then, oh no, we've picked up a crazy psychopath. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. There was one for a while. I thought that they gave the hitchhiker a story um, that was untrue. Uh, just to uh, kind of not um, raise suspicions or, or something but then it was like reported in that in the news in the radio cast or something like that um, so I, I wasn't sure about that but I mean overall like it's it's really simple um, as far as the you know they're going to this guy this place this guy kidnaps them and tells them to drive in this direction. And I mean, the hitchhiker's motivations are like really simple, too. He just wants to get to this one town where he's he doesn't have any heat at the at the moment Mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, like that's just he's just trying to get there. He doesn't have a lot of and he's just messing with these two guys on his way. And he's not not afraid to kill anyone, you know, that prevents him from getting to his destination.
0: Yeah. In his own little uh, crazed
1: way. Mm hmm. I think
0: it just goes to show I I think the the big takeaway from it is it should it should show that female directors were viable in classic Hollywood. It's just that they were consciously chosen to not there was a conscious decision to not go with them.
1: Yeah. And, and the other there, thing is there's like
0: nothing like if you watch this movie, there's nothing about this movie that tells me or actually I should say everything about this movie tells me that Ida Lupino could make a winning film noir at yeah. the Hollywood budget level and have it be super successful. As like this said, film that could have gotten her to direct Bonnie her. and Clyde, basically. Yeah, like, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I, I think that
1: it it's proof. It's proof that that is possible. Um, and the other thing is these are not like, "Quote unquote women's fi- this is not like a quote unquote women's film," you know. Like we no, talked about with Dorothy Arsner, like a lot of her things, you know, relate uh, to uh, women's struggles and and women uh, empowerment to various degrees, uh, and and they're kind of geared towards women in in some ways. And yet, this film fits directly in with uh, you know uh, a guy's film. It's about a dude with a gun holding up two other guys. Uh, and the all the tension and stress that comes with that like it's an exciting film and you know she was able to to do that and pull it off and make it work um and it, it you know she's not she's not limited to female films i mean we're going to see that with the trouble with angels um she did a lot of stuff about you know uh rape and unplanned pregnancy and uh even bigamy which is kind of out there but You know, this film shows that she's not limited to that in her range of uh, abilities. I mean, even in the the TV work that she directed shows that she's not limited to that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, This is just another example of how, like, wide and diverse her capabilities were as both an actor and a director. Um, But alas, should we move on to The Trouble with Angels, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, let's talk about The Trouble with Angels.
2: Jason, give us a summary. The Trouble with Angels, from 1966. Mary and Rachel are two rebellious, troublesome teenage girls who are sent off to a Catholic boarding school by their parents. Once at St. Francis Academy, the girls repeatedly butt heads with the Mother Superior, smoking, skipping class, and playing an ever-escalating series of ridiculous pranks. But as these girls hover here at the end of childhood, The deeper problems in their lives that may have triggered some of these rebellious behaviors bubble to the surface. Perhaps there's a chance that Mary and Rachel will find some sort of redemption in their friendship, pranks, and the school. So, Jonathan,
0: I've been led to understand that you've seen this movie growing up and that it's one of your
1: family's uh, uh, favorite movies. Yeah, my parents had this movie. It's again, it's one of those movies that my parents like, you know, had this affinity for like a, a these these kind of out of the way comedies that a select uh amount of people actually know about and you know it turns out that they they show up in our in our film studies so I think that's that's hilarious uh there's just these little hidden gems of comedy there's so many one-liners in this film that my parents say all the time um and uh yeah so this this movie is very like quippy and screwball-y uh but the setting is very interesting because it's set in an all girls school and the cast is almost entirely female. So you've, but it's, it's kind of a, an age tension thing between the older yeah. nuns and the, the young students. Uh, yeah, it's, so it's essentially a coming of age movie. movie.
0: Yeah. 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 It's a it coming of age comedy movie. Um, that's with very rare exception. I think there might be one or two male characters who pop in for like
1: a hot second and then they're mm-hmm. gone. Uh, yeah, like the two dads that are both terrible um, and then the the headmaster of the boys school across the way that they uh, that they <laughs> take their their band outfits over to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some crazy, crazy pranks in here, too. Uh, but yes,
0: it is almost entirely female. Uh, there's no romance plot
1: in the entire movie, uh, which I think is is. Not to be lightly dismissed. We should definitely talk about that.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's definitely there. It's it's completely focused on the friendship and essentially like a comparison of two girls with who are both rebellious, and we examine why they're rebellious, like their um, what happened to them in their past that's made them this way, or has led them to uh, to be this rebellious. Besides it just being the '60s in general. Uh, and then being teenage girls, and, and then being teenage girls, and being sent away to Catholic boarding school, <laughs> um, like even that has an implication. Well, they were of, sent to Catholic boarding school because they were rebellious. Exactly, I'm saying, yeah, that has an implication of you did something that got you sent here, right? Um, or somebody did not like how you were behaving, so you got sent here. Um, and and watching them struggle with trying to come come into their own maturity, uh, with a character who's essentially just begging them to accept responsibility for their lives moving forward. Uh, or without, just any kind of responsibility, really. Yeah, like any kind of responsibility at all, really. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, it's essentially framed as like a series of pranks, jokes, um, and so on, which makes it funny. It's
1: like The Parent but, Trap without the the romance plot and the family stuff. You know, you just yes, strip all that away, true. and it's just a series of shenanigans. Yeah, it's very true.
0: Um, now, one thing I want to ask you about, Jonathan, and this is something I I read while researching this film, was that when it when it first came out, it wasn't very well received. Um, and one of the reasons it wasn't very well received was that the decision by one of the the girls to stay with the nunnery or the convent at the end of the uh, end of the movie felt unmotivated. And I'm curious what, what your take on that is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I
1: completely disagree with that. Okay, I mean, why it, do you it, disagree it, with that? So it's a slow burn. Uh, and I'm not saying that the movie is perfect, but I, I don't like this argument. Uh, uh I have it here down on paper in your affidavit. <laughs> this movie is perfect. Sign Jonathan Satchel. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, there, there are a lot of moments where we see Haley Mills or, uh, yeah, the, um, What's her name? Mary, I think, Um, where we see Mary, you know, have these little glimpses of realization. So when the one sister leaves to uh, be a missionary to a leper colony somewhere across the world uh, and and Mary is just so perplexed about that because this is, uh, you know, they tell us that she's the most beautiful of the nuns um, and so they think that she's going to go off and, you know, get married and get swept away by some handsome man. Uh, but she wants to go serve the lepers, which puts her in danger of having her, her physical appearance marred. And And Mary doesn't understand that. And so the, the sister tries to explain to her that it's because she has a genuine uh, love for these people and she wants to help them. Um, and then there's the... Uh, I think it's like a a Christmas mass or something where she goes and she's hiding and she just kind of like watches the ritual um, of the nuns, uh, you know, going through, I I don't exactly know what happens at that Christmas mass, but there are all these like little moments that happen with just Mary. And at almost all of those moments, um, uh, Rachel isn't there. And I think that that's, that's something really interesting is the, the differences in, Mary and Rachel and how that goes into the end and Rachel feeling betrayed and all that kind of thing. But, you know, they give us all of these little clues along the way that are never really the focus, but they kind of are the focus as indicated by the very end. It's kind of like the hitchhiker where at the very end you realize what the movie was actually about all along.
0: Yeah, it is a very subtle form of filmmaking. Um, And one that wasn't necessarily super common in comedies of the day uh,
1: and and probably unexpected. It kind of, yeah, it kind of subverts the comedy genre, which may be the thing that people felt the disconnect with. But it's I think that that enhances the, you know, the quality of the comedy because it is a comedy with another purpose. It's not just there to be shenanigans. I feel like. The, f- the movie would fall a lot flatter if it was, oh, they, you know, messed around with the nuns for a couple years and then they went off and they were better people because of it without that really big change at the end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say I actually I understood <laughs> her motivations mm-hmm. watching this through the first time and I actually quite enjoyed the uh, the character arc there. And I like the idea of one girl kind of being complacent and being a rebel for most of the, most of the movie and the other one kind of searching for something more and then finding it mm-hmm. over the course of the film, uh, which was quite the, nice.
1: Yeah. The inter- the other interesting element to that is the difference in Mary and Rachel's characters. Like Mary is always the instigator and they even bring this up in the movie. Mary is the leader and Rachel is the follower. Um, so you would almost expect Rachel to be the one who, you know, kind of more uh, gets more led into the convent, just kind of following after the other uh, sisters and and that kind of thing. And she ha- she tends to have the more kind of subdued personality. And yet they also bring up the fact that that is what makes Mary's decision so much more impactful than, you know, someone who's just kind of going with the crowd like because she sees all the other nuns are doing it so okay i guess i guess that's a pretty good way to live life i don't want to go back to my home or my dad or whatever but it's you know mary who you know would not do it if she wasn't truly convinced that she wanted to or needed to yeah no that's fair that makes sense um
0: all right so what do you think about the brand of humor in this uh in this movie, Jonathan, it's a little bit irreverent. It's a little bit zany. It's a little mm-hmm. bit unexpected and ridiculous. Occasionally, um, slapsticky. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it uh, really has a lot going for it in the in the comedy realm because there's there's uh, you know there's physical comedy, there's uh, dialogue comedy, um, there's just situational comedy, just like just being in a. Uh, a habit or an abbey. I don't actually know what the technical term for the school that they were at is, but um, like it's, uh, I guess they call it a nunnery, um, but I never know if that's a, if that's a technical Get word a Get thee to the nunnery. <laughs> Get thee to a nunnery. Uh, which she would have been very familiar with, uh, Ida Lupino. Um, so yeah, just, I feel like that setting presents a lot of opportunities for comedy. What were your thoughts on it going into it Fresh because, again, like I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but I was familiar with with a lot of the the elements of it. So what what was your first impressions of it? Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It felt like
0: a fun movie and it felt like it had a really nice character arc to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get a lot of punch out of it from the comedy, which makes sense for a light hearted hearted comedy. Um, It's kind of just a consistent level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's not like a lot of rise and fall of tension in it um
1: at least for me because i think it is one of, of those really it. like slow build things that's it's all under the surface and so mm-hmm. you kind of keep keep the surface pretty level without doing a lot of upsetting the status quo and then that makes the the dramatic twist at the end you know more potent exactly no it kind of does exactly what you expect it
0: to do over the course of the film i didn't feel like i got too many surprises. There's one or two,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but they were kind of. It was kind of something that I, I expected there to be some trauma for these girls in the past to explain how what they were doing now. Um, yeah. I just didn't know the specifics of what it was
1: going to be. Um, yeah, so, they kind of just allude to a general neglect.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I I feel like it would be safe to call this no thrills, which. Is okay because I don't think that's what it's going for.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a safely fun movie with a a heart and a, um, yeah, kind of that that underlying introspection, uh, which is interesting because a lot of times comedy can just rest on being funny without adding anything else to it. And I think the other the other interesting thing too, as far as the the setting, is that there are so many ways that we have seen nuns be portrayed uh you know all the way from i don't know i'm trying to think of two extremes because you have like uh you have this kind of a movie where it's like a a comedy and then you have like uh what's it black narcissus where it's kind of like subverting the whole idea of nuns oh gosh and then even like something Uh, like movies oh yeah and then even something like doubt which we haven't covered on the podcast but that goes into kind of uh almost a more sinister aspect of, of Catholicism and, um, and that kind of thing. But this doesn't fall into any like huge non-stereotypes. I feel like, I feel like they were all very, uh, sympathetic and they, they were never the, the, uh, the ruler knuckle wrapping kind of, uh, I don't even know what to call it. Like like they were never the the stern disciplinarians. There we go. The stereotypical uh, nuns. Yeah, and and they weren't like pushovers because I mean, we have to build an understanding between the two characters. And so it it they were not uh, hard stereotypes on either side, which I think can be a really hard line to to walk these days because there are so many stereotypical depictions of nuns. Uh but this movie does a really good job of not making you feel like discredit them as you know. Oh, they're just the the really strict legalist religious nuns, or um, you know, they're just power hungry or whatever. Yeah,
0: just just a more appealed towards uh, discipline than they are to um, morality or teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah no, they they kind of uh, supersede that in a lot of ways. All of the nuns in this movie seem to be full complex human beings, except for that one who's just old.
1: Yeah, the one that's sleeping. Like sister, her, that's her entire sister, character. Prudence. She seems to be asleep, which I thought was you know, as far as a thematic line goes, having Sister Prudence be asleep at the at the nunnery, uh, and then seeing all the uh, the imprudent acts that the two sisters that the two girls do is uh, you know you know, just one of those other little like subtle things that kind of slips in there. Yeah, no,
0: it's, uh, it's
1: quite fascinating.
0: Um, all right, Jonathan, anything else to talk about on the trouble with angels? Uh, the color. Oh yes, that's right. I think this is, (laughs) I think this is Ida Lupino's only color film. I'm pretty sure. Oh, Really? That, yeah, well she, she, this was her last feature film, but she didn't, so there was a big gap between the film right before this and The Trouble with Angels. Mm-hmm. It's like almost a 10-year gap, I think. With uh, a lot of television in there, but with no lot of film directing. There. Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Television, by the way, would transfer over to color much later, not until the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there was a big gap between the two. So she, there is a lot of bright Technicolor in here. Um, she does use a really good good palette, I think. I think there's this tendency of a lot of movies in the 60s to way over punch up the color, which I can understand. You suddenly have color to play with, and sometimes you want to overdo it. I get it. Um, And sometimes it works really well. Uh, But a lot of times it can come off as way too much color. Uh, But in this one, there is a lot of pastels worked in. There's a lot of blacks and whites worked in. And the neutral like stone of the nunnery itself kind of Helps keep the overall palette relatively balanced.
1: Yeah, and so that, based on just the virtue of the the setting, you have the their uniforms, which are all white and gray, the nun habits, which are all black and white, and then like you're saying, that that really muted, earthy tones in the in the stonework in the nunnery, but every time there's a break, which we skip over all the like Christmas breaks and summer breaks. But every time we see them about to go on break, they're all wearing really bright colors. Um, and they come back with a lot of like pinks and greens and yellows. Um, and even like the, the dress that Rachel is trying to make that, um, uh, Rosalind Russell's character helps her finish. And then their band uniforms that win them the medal, uh, not necessarily because of their band, uh, skills uh, are very bright and red. And so when they do have those pops of color, they're used in order to stand out from the, the really kind of drab colors of the rest of the nunnery scenes.
0: Yeah. 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 Which makes sense because they're, they're the kind of like loud boisterous rebels Mm -hmm. here in this otherwise black and white neutral toned, um, uh, area.
1: Yeah. World and mindset and all that kind of thing. Um so yeah, I think that's about it for the trouble with Angels. Let's move on into overall notes, uh whatever we haven't covered yet. All right. Uh okay, so I Lupino overall, a uh, brilliant actress,
0: although apparently she was never that into it, yeah. <laughs> which is just and a, also a kind of probably underutilized. Her uh, also definitely yeah, definitely underutilized. Uh really she spent most of her time in Hollywood acting in B movies. Um so if you're I would say if you're someone who's familiar with that era of Hollywood, you're probably. Uh, you're probably familiar with her name,
1: yeah. but if you, you've run across if a just, film yeah. if you're
0: just Yeah. If two. you're just like kind of a casual film scholar, or a newer film scholar who hasn't spent a lot of time digging or paying attention to old Hollywood, she's not a name you would probably know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she kind of picked her own career path which i find is really interesting and strong and respectable um and she she optionally decided to instead of sticking in the higher budget b movies as an actress to go down to her own indie productions which were harder to do harder to fund um would never have as big as a budget or as big of a uh, reach as the hollywood productions had um just so she could make movies the way she wanted to make movies, which is really cool and really impressive. And I think something to definitely look up to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the different types of films that she was in, that she created afterwards, that she plugged into as far as television, like she didn't have this, this neat box that she fit into. And she really showed that, you know, women can get in there and they can direct in any genre and they can, uh, They have a lot to bring to all aspects of filmmaking, not just films that may uh, uh, appeal to a specifically female audience, uh, which I think is probably huge. And, you know, as far as her being the first one before, you know, Hollywood starts to, you know, get more of the female voice in there, you know, really helps people to see like, okay, yeah, so we can make uh, crime thrillers and, you know, let women direct them because they have that ability, which is kind of obvious, but not so much for early Hollywood. Um, and so she's really able to kind of step in there, you know, lead the way in the television, um, arena for female directors lead the way in, uh, you know, different types of films. And, you know, like Dorothy Arzner had a lot going for her. She had a lot of complexity in her films, but they still all kind of fit in a, in a similar genre. And Ida Lupino comes in and she's like, ah, I'll just take on whatever genre I feel interested in at the moment. Uh, and I'm going to take on yeah, right. you know, social issues that no one is talking about. I'm going to take on uh, all of these things that, you know, just weren't being done. Uh, definitely by female directors and sometimes not even by male directors. Uh, and she kind of just blows the door wide open on those things. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite impressive. She just kind of did what she wanted. And heck, that's freaking
0: admirable. Good for her. <laughs> It's a shame. It is a shame that her stuff was never as widely recognized as her talent seemed to be worthy of. Um, yeah, I mean, I she's, feel like she's a classically like trained. Yeah, I feel like performer. it's important. I feel like it's important for, you know, current people who um, want to uh, who want to learn how to make movies or study movies or are involved in getting in film production or TV production or video production of any way to study people like this and see how both how much talent is out there waiting to be used and also see the detriments of putting up walls or putting up those glass ceilings to people in their way and how much you can leave on the table in a, in so to speak, when you do something like that, like imagine if Ida Lupino had access to
1: Hollywood resources to make her movies That'd be amazing. Like even um, High Sierra, which was like uh, uh, written by John Huston, which we didn't bring up, but that's, uh, um, you know, another tie in to some of the classic noir stuff that we've talked about before. Um, but you definitely feel like she could fall into the, the types of films that John Huston was making that were, you know, big and had lots of very uh, epic dramatic, um, scopes and and thematic scopes like she definitely has those tendencies she just didn't necessarily have those opportunities and she took the ones that she could but you know you can only make so much on your own like we even see that today there's still so much that you can make on your own and yet there's still only so much that you can make on your own yeah yeah it's hard
0: oh it can be hard to do stuff um Uh, solo but it can often be worthwhile anyway so what are we talking about next time on the podcast Alex well next time on the podcast Jonathan we have special guest uh, reoccurring all star summer reader extraordinaire Jason Harden back on the show to talk about a combination of two genres we've kind of covered in the past musicals or music movies and biopics specifically biopics about musicians um, that aren't that kind of cover a specific borderline between recounting history and the involvement of music, um, and everything that goes into that. So specifically we're going to be talking about what's love got to do with it from 1993, Ray from 2004 and love and mercy from 2014.
1: Yeah. Good range. Lots of, uh, Jason is big on music and, uh, so it'll be great to, uh, get his takes on how that transitions into film. And it'll be, uh, you know, uh, another good, very diverse aspect that Jason has brought to the podcast. So we look forward to that. Um, but we also have some donations. If you would like to support the show, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash the film And uh, there you can join our online community. We have a discord where we record our podcast live for anyone who wants to listen in um we also have a bonus podcast at the five dollar tier and the last thing that we talked about was a short film that you can see on vimeo um, that uh somewhat relates to lucille ball and kind of goes into our discussion of dance girl dance with lucille ball uh and also just kind of you know that one was just fun just just some kind of random trivia about uh sculptures all right y'all uh without further ado that's all the time we have for this episode if you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it.
0: Talk to you next time. All right, see ya.
1: Jason is happily listening to Sting right now. He's not worried about you. What is he listening to? Sting. Uh, if I ever lose my faith in you. Wow, that's a throwback. <laughs> that's like Jason throwbacks.